Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So Mark 9, 42 through 50 says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me. So it's interesting, Mark doesn't have this story immediately after the story about bringing up the child. So it's possible that Mark, even in that phrase, those who believe in me, is indicating that yes, Jesus did talk about this with children, but he's also talking about anybody who kind of puts their trust in Jesus, Jesus will defend them as if they were his children as well. Um, and yes, Jesus always looks out for the vulnerable, but that includes us. And as we recognize our vulnerability and our trust in him, we can trust that he will take care of us. So he may be broadening it to not just include children, but include anybody who is trusting in Jesus. And he says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched, and everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, this is a cheerful passage. Um, so <laughs> just to stipulate, and I think if I ask you, I think you would all come to this place anyway, but but just to stipulate, I, I think I don't think I don't think there are very many people. There have historically been a few, but I think it's fair to say they probably had other issues. I don't think very many people would hear this or read this and think that Jesus is encouraging actual mutilation uh, of any of our bodies. And this is one of the examples, and there are so many of them, and you guys have seen them as we've gone through the New Testament so far. It's one of the examples of hyperbole. Jesus is fine with hyperbole. It's a figure of speech. He has no problem speaking in exaggerated terms in ways that people understand he's doing so in order to make a really strong point. So I think that it is absolutely fair to see, you know, he starts by saying, if anyone causes children or vulnerable believers to stumble, then they should be thrown into the sea. And then goes on to say, while we're talking about that, if your right eye causes you to stumble, or your foot causes you to stumble, or your hand causes you to stumble, that should be cut off as well. So I think a couple of possibilities. One is that he might even be using the, the idea of the hand, the foot, and the eye as metaphors for people that will lead us astray. Since it's in the same context, it's possible that he's simply saying, hey, if you even, no matter how important they are to you, they may be your right hand, they may be your right eye, you may feel like they're the most important mentor in your life, but if they're leading you astray, it would be better to cut them off. It would be better to suffer that loss than to bring them with you. I'm not insisting that's what's happening here, but it, it just struck me uh, in the last week that the context leads to that possibility. Secondly, I will point out, if you don't like Jesus speaking in hyperbole, it's interesting. You can take this verse exactly literally if you want and still end up okay, because if you're going to take it literally, you have to also recognize that Jesus says your eye, your foot, and your hand don't literally cause you to stumble. It's what's inside you, he said, that causes you to stumble. So he could literally say, if they could cause you to stumble, you'd be better to cut them off, but then acknowledge, but they can't really. So if you insist on literal in that sense, you're still okay. I personally think he's speaking in hyperbole. And the other main point here obviously is it doesn't do you any good to hold on to anything. And this is a point we've seen through scripture and through Jesus' message before now. It doesn't do you any good to hold on to anything that will cause you to 
lose your soul or that will cause you to suffer eternal damage. It doesn't make any sense. Those things are not worth it. It's just not worth it. As important as even your right hand might seem to you or your left eye or your foot, those are not important enough for you to, to suffer permanent eternal damage. And I think that's a, a reasonable point. And he's just using very specific things to sort of make that point. So I think whatever else happens, that's the bottom line point. That's what he's making. The other thing I want to bring up that comes out of this, uh, well, and that sin is destructive, that that if that 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 holding on to things, if they cause you to sin, if they're leading you to sin, that sin destroys you. Ultimately, it's it's the sin that is leading to you cutting this off, so to speak. It's the sin that is leading to the fire and the worm that never die and the fire that never quenches. All right. Having said that, the other big question about this is this is one of the few places, and and by few, I don't mean non-existent at all. There are a couple others, but this is one of the few places that Jesus directs a uh, a uh, uh, addresses hell directly. Oh, looks like we lost Jolene. Now she's coming back. What an interesting moment for her to come back. This is one of the few moments that Jesus addresses hell directly. And, and this is even where we get the word. And we get some of our picture of hell from this, right? He talks about a fire that never quenches and a worm that is never destroyed and never stops eating. And so just to address that just a little bit. So the, the first thing is I, my personal understanding through scripture just so you know what my bias is as I talk, um, my personal understanding is that hell is a real thing, and it is the place that people who who choose to not submit themselves to God, um, it's the place that God has for them, that he says, look, I, if you don't want to be where I am, then you have to be where I'm not. And that's not quite possible, but I'm going to carve out a little part of the universe where to a degree, I'm not, where it will be like I'm not there. And that's because that's what you said you want, and it's because that's where you said you want to be. And since God is life and beauty and everything good, anything apart from his presence is going to be the opposite of all that. And so I think that's kind of the essence of hell, and I think it's real, and I think it exists. Okay, having said all that, Scripture is not as clear about hell as we'd like it to be. And the exact nature of what hell is and what it looks like and, and whether it's eternal or whether it's some people believe it's just annihilation, that it doesn't last eternally, that 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 if that it's just the opposite of life is non-existence. Um, I'm not I'm not ready to go there, but that's a position that some people hold that I, I don't think is necessarily heretical. Some of the early church fathers didn't think it was heretical either, for the record. But but well, here's what we do know from this passage. Why what is the term hell here? So the term hell is literally the word Gehenna which is literally Valley of Himmon. And what this means is that Jesus is actually doing what teachers always do. He's pointing to a literal physical illustration that's near him. So where he is, as he's preaching to people, there is this valley, which is the dump. It's, it's literally the dump. It's where they take their trash and they burn it. And it's perpetually on fire because that's what it is. It's a dump that is always burning and always on fire. There's also uh, speculation, educated speculation, let's say, that the Valley of Himon is not just a dump, but it became the dump because it was also a place where human sacrifice was done um, by Greeks and Romans prior to some of that passing away and not being sort of a regular thing anymore. And so, uh, and so the valley is is not only a place where there's constant fire and there are literal worms and there's destruction and it's a dump, but it's also a place that sort of has this ominous presence of evil uh, because it is where human sacrifice took place. And so Jesus points to this thing that everybody can see, can smell, 
can is familiar with, and he says, this is where sin leads you. This is where you end up if you choose to, to follow sin. Sin may look like it's going to lead to pleasant places, to, to riches, to, to wealth, to beauty, to glory, to power, but this is what it's going to lead to is this dump. And in that light is where he mentions hell's fire and the worm that never dies. And, and, and that's why I think it's perfectly reasonable. I don't think it's mandatory, but I think it's reasonable to understand both the fire and the worm as metaphors. In other words, is hell literally filled with fire? I don't know. Revelation calls it a lake of fire, but again, that's John, who's also familiar with the Valley of Himmon and maybe is using the same illustration. So I don't know. I'm not saying I know what hell looks like. I do not. Um, unlike certain people throughout history, I have never dreamed I have gone to hell, and I have never been to hell, um, and I do not claim to have any prior knowledge of hell, except what I see in Scripture. And so fire could, I, it makes sense in this passage to me that fire and worm are both metaphorical. That would make sense. It's also possible that fire and worm are both literal. What's interesting, though, is very few people think that both fire and worm are literal. Most people who think hell is fire read this passage with the worm being a metaphor and the fire being literal. And that is my least likely guess of what's happening here. It just doesn't seem reasonable to me that Jesus would split his metaphor. So one a part of it's a metaphor and part of it's literal. My guess is he's speaking metaphorically, which doesn't rule out that there might be worms and fire and hell. But in this case, I think he's pointing to the object illustration in front of them, which is this valley, this dump where everything is on fire. None of that means that hell isn't real. None of that means that Jesus's point about sin leading to destruction, um, or that if you were to give yourself over to you know all just the all the material things for pleasure that that would end up leading you to a place which is the opposite of pleasure i think that point is still true i think all of it's still true um i just think as far as the theology of what hell looks like we we know that metaphorically you could describe it as fire that never quenches and worms that never die um and what that means there's some room there to to go from um so i think as we look at all that there is one other interesting point I'll point out. It does say their worm never dies. It's interesting. It says the fire never quenches, but it says their worm. So let me go back. It says, it says, um, oh, it doesn't say that actually here. In in various other translations, and at least according to some of the commentators I've seen in the Greek, it, it does literally say their worm. So it says uh, where their worm, oh, the worms that eat them, I guess. But sometimes that's translated their worms do not die and the fire, the fire is not quenched. And some commentators for years, commentators, I mean, going back to the early church fathers, have said that the point of that is the worms here are a little bit metaphorical of their own uh, corruption or their own remorse, that, that that's what they're filled with, you know, forever going forward. And so that it's kind of personal. Each worm is kind of their own personal worm. Again, I'm just giving you information to kind of work with as you'd like. The bottom line point is, is really, it's not worth it. The bottom line point is it's not worth holding onto your hand. It's not worth holding onto your foot. It's not worth holding onto your eye. It's not worth holding onto your mentors. You know, it's not a good thing to be, to be led astray and to focus on these things that you want to hold on to. It's not worth holding on to any of these things because all good things, all beauty, all life, all grace, all truth, all goodness are in Christ. And everything else is an illusion, which leads just to worms and fire. Okay, so that's, I think, basically what's happening here. Does anybody have any comments or thoughts or disagreements or questions, anything about this passage uh, before we go on?
Yeah. Well, I do think it's useful. Uh, so Go ahead, Jeff. Jeff and then Lorraine. Okay. Uh, I mean, just do we, do we know if the word, original word for worm would actually differentiate between worm and snake? Because I was just wondering if it's saying Satan referencing back to Garden of Eden kind of thing. That's a really good question, Jeff. And normally I would not know the answer to this question, but I actually happened to stumble upon what this word worm is for a different reason. So it actually is different from snake, but it is still reptilian. And, you know, Satan is variously described as a snake and a dragon and a serpent. So I, I think that it's possible he could also be worm-like. Um, but what I will say, an interesting note, since you bring it up, is this is also not only worm, it's a particular kind of worm. It's a worm that chews upon dead bodies. And some people have used that to say, that's one reason this has to be metaphorical, because if if people are sort of alive in one sense in hell, then you wouldn't describe a worm that chews on dead bodies as chewing on them. I don't know if I buy that, because they are still dead. <laughs> so maybe that wouldn't be a bad worm to use. But nonetheless... Uh, in answer to your question, it is a worm as distinct from a snake, but that doesn't mean that the idea that it's related to some sort of metaphor for Satan, it doesn't mean that that's out of the picture. Yeah. Okay, Lori. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I just think, well, and so he's also, it's a quote too, right? He's quoting Isaiah. So hmm. even there, it's... Um, well, my Bible has a note on it. I didn't just know that. That's good. Tip. But I just think even as far as he's continuing to use language that they're familiar with, he's not only making an analogy that they would recognize, he's using language they're familiar with. So again, whether it's literal or whether Isaiah had to put it into some sort of language that was meaningful to him and Jesus is continuing to use that. And I just think that, um, kind of like with end times, theology in general, hell is one of those things that I think we may have a lot of definite ideas about, and it's always useful to examine how much of those are cultural and from the church and the circles that we came from and extrapolation. And some of that is, we're going to do that because we are creative. We do naturally, our brains fill in the blanks where we don't have all the information. And so it's not that we have to necessarily stop doing all that together, but we need to stop putting that at the same level as what is in the Bible explicitly. And so it's always useful to remember what's not, I think. That's really good, Lorraine. And that's interesting. Yeah, that, that, that quote from Isaiah. So the only reason I didn't bring that up is because when I was looking into that quote, I went down a rabbit hole that I wasn't sure I wanted to kind of pull back from. But but one of the things I'll say is that quote in Isaiah, or that I didn't want to get us into. One of the things I will say is that that quote in Isaiah, it, it does seem to it's clearly, and Isaiah is a guy of imagery, it's clearly for Isaiah metaphorical in imagery too, because he even talks about how the righteous ones in the end times will go watch, will go look at the, 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 the evil nations that have been destroyed and watch them being eaten by worms. And I am 100% confident that Isaiah did not believe that actually is what we will spend our time doing um, when we're in heaven, because that does not sound like a good activity for holy people to be engaged in. And I just don't think that's what Isaiah meant. I think in his in his world, what he's talking about in that passage, and again, without going to, down a, a huge rabbit hole, I will just say that as far as I can understand it, what he's talking about in that passage is he is just talking about the fact that there's the destructive nature of sin, and the destructive nature of sin is going to lead people to their demise, and the holy people will see with clarity in the end times that sin is destructive and leads to your own demise. 
but that they be as they see that it will help you know kind of affirm their own position i think that's kind of what isaiah is talking about and like most of what isaiah says he's speaking in big national terms too so that changes things a little bit anyway bottom line though is to your point Lorian, that is a good catch that that jesus is quoting isaiah as he often does so that he, again why does he choose that language because it's language they're familiar with because it's already a concept that they already have in their head and he's connecting it also to this valley that is present with them um, and may or may not have been present in the time of isaiah it seems like a big ask to assume that isaiah was familiar with the exact same dump but there are those who argue in fact that it has been burning that long that it was the same dump i don't know if i'm persuaded in that or not that's a thousand years but that's that's some people have argued that any other thoughts? it is interesting i just kind of looking through the isaiah 66 obviously i'm not like really digging into it right now but they he does have a little section about um following like uh following those will eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other unclean things and that they will meet the end together with those that they follow. Yeah. No, that's good. It's definitely for it seems Isaiah. to go with the other thing. Yeah, for Isaiah, it's definitely part of the end time stuff, as Lorian pointed out, too. As it is for Jesus, too, right? There's an assumption there's a an ultimate end to all this conversation. Well, and also the idea, too, of, like, early of, like, you know, their sacrifices don't really mean anything. What he wants is someone is humble and contrite in spirit. And that's like kind of what he's been dealing with, with like the Pharisees and like, well, and even his own disciples, you know, a little bit, some Good. like with that. And then that was interesting what you said about the, the maybe following like a mentor or whatever, because I'd never really thought about it like that. So. No, that's good. And I'll be honest, that's one of those things that just occurred to me as I read the context this week, I haven't heard before. And I'm always a little bit tentative about anything that seems new to me. So I'm hoping I'll discover that other people have already said it, and then I'll feel better about it. But for now, I think it's a reasonable possibility that that because of the yeah. context about that. Yeah, and it could just be like a side little thing that's just kind of generally true with it too. I mean, like, right before that, not so long before that, they're saying that, um, one who causes this to happen to so like one of the little ones that are a believer right. um it's better for them to have a large millstone <laughs> thrown into the sea so i mean that seems like it would be about like mentors and stuff like that right. yeah exactly that's where the context comes that i think that may be what he's talking about with the arm and the hand yeah that's possible i agree i think I think that first verse to that warning really shows an understanding of the fact that <laughs> like everybody wants power everybody kind of wants to be in charge I mean maybe not everybody but in general people want to be in charge and so it's just a really good reminder that that's don't take that lightly and I think we can even see kind of at this moment in some ways I think there are pockets where we're seeing the fallout of of spiritual abuse by leaders and there is some of that what's been done in the dark will be brought to light and so it's also I think encouraging in that way for people who are victims of that to see that Jesus takes that very seriously. And, yeah. and not surprisingly, and by definition, spiritual abuse is often taking advantage of the vulnerable, right? That's why they're 
that's why they're taken advantage of, whether that's women or children or or just particularly vulnerable uh, males. It can be anybody except that is typically what happens. It's the vulnerable that are taken advantage of at those moments. Um, Paul has a warning about that in First Timothy, which seems very similar to, to watch. And he used the word worm as a verb. He says, watch about those people who worm their way into homes and, and <laughs> take advantage of the vulnerable. So interesting. So when it says... If anyone causes one of these little ones, and then it says dash those who believe in me, dash those is kind of like a like a comma, like he's making that bridge kind of from meta metaphorical to like literal. I didn't make. I think it's just like a definition, like further explanation. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Okay, like the little ones are those who believe in me. Yes, although it's not clear to me if he means the little ones, specifically the little ones that believe in me, children that believe in me, or if he means the little ones, and then he's saying, and actually by that, I mean everyone who believes in me. I'm I'm not sure if he's expanding it or narrowing it, the definition by the dash. It it makes more sense to me to expand it because it doesn't feel like... Jesus would want to make a point that he doesn't defend children who don't believe in him. That would seem weird. Or it could also be something that like Mark added in. Oh, no, not not probably because it's in like quotes. And Mark is not into adding stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Mark is the guy who likes to keep things as short as he can. Um, There's a whole thing about his little ones, those who believe in him. Okay, let's go on. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Maybe there was a lot more. And uh, and ironically, as we're having this very serious conversation about a verse that describes little ones, my uh, littlest one just happens to wander by and wave at all of y'all and then carry on her merry little way. (laughs) All y'all, you're in Florida, not Texas. Tell him him that later... (laughs) Later, you can tell, well, I don't know if it was a him or her little one, but tell that little one. the littlest one. Tell that little one later that, um, you know, we were just discussing how Jesus is defensive for little, little ones. So there you go. That's good. Well, it's maybe like with that, he's reminding them of the thing he just said, which is that the people who are the greatest and the people who will enter the kingdom of heaven are the people like children. So he's like, remember if anyone causes these little ones and remember when I say little ones, I mean, people who follow me, including literal little ones and (laughs) non-literal little ones because it is right after that. So it does seem like it's just a a callback. I think you're right. Again, just in case you didn't get it, like the bread thing, I actually mean those. (laughs) I think you're right. And that also fits in very well with what you pointed out, Lori, in that he is giving a warning against seeking too much power over others because of the responsibility with it. Because all of this has been about, you know, are you seeking power? Are you seeking glory? Well, you should do it by serving. And then pointing out if you serve people badly, that's bad for you too. <laughs> so I think uh, I think that that actually all fits. That flows well. Now, what I do not understand and does not flow well is where we stop. So let's finish off this little section. <laughs> I do not understand this verse in this context. This verse shows up in other gospels in a completely different context, which makes more sense. But I do not understand it here. And here's oh, I was he, going to ask you that. Yeah. Well, but we hadn't gotten there yet. So I have no answers. He says this. Okay. The worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And then he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. I do not understand how he goes from fire judgment to being salted with fire being a good thing and then encouraging us to all be at peace and be salty when he just said that was a fire of judgment. I don't understand. 
I have no answers for this context of this verse. I believe it means something, but I, I'm much more comfortable with this verse in the other gospels where it comes up in, in a much easier context. Uh, does anybody have any thoughts that I'm missing? Maybe something's obvious to you here. I am just saying, as I try to do when it's the reality, I am clueless what this verse is about in this context. Any thoughts? I could it just be the gospel writer having this, oh, by the way, I meant to tell you this earlier, and I'm just writing it now. I mean, yeah. there's a whole like, bunch of more information, school. context that was left out. <laughs> you're, so you're saying maybe, and I'm not disputing this, because again, I don't know what's happening here. You're saying, Sue, that maybe the gospel writer was reminded of salt because he mentioned salt. And now he's like, oh, and Jesus said these other things about salt, too. And that could be yeah. not a terribly helpful thing, but that could be what's happening. What are the other contexts? It's God inspired, yeah. so it shouldn't be out. It shouldn't be right. out of it's a little weird for me <laughs> to try to go with that. Yeah. And the, the quotation marks are a little weird, but I know that that's a. Uh, not mark wasn't using quotation marks so that's correct so it's a little hard to know what that's even for <laughs> translators what that's about yeah they're just and like the aren't any ones... around everyone will be salted with fire I know. but so he I also don't... didn't close it earlier so it might just be a paragraph thing that the translators were doing so i don't want to put too much stock in that yes agreed agreed yeah remember there are no quotation marks in the greek um so it gets hard to know what's a quote and what's not. So is it possible that if the quotation is supposed to be there, that what's happening is a little bit of what Sue said, but it's like Jesus was reminded that he said something else about salt and decided to go in another direction. Again, feels a little bit disorganized for Jesus. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I suppose it's possible. Yes, Meredith. Um. The other times that it comes up, it's more like right after like the Beatitudes, right? Yep. And like in their personal, I mean that, I don't get that everyone will be salted with fire, but I could see a little bit putting the, the salt thing in there. That kind of flows a little bit with the idea of like, you know, like checking yourself and like others in that sense. No, I agree. It's the being salted with fire that's throwing me off. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a really bad transition is what I would say if anyone else tried to. I'd be like, you're doing a really weird thing where your metaphors are mixing in a way that salt is bad and then suddenly salt is good. Like, I don't. That's what I'm missing. It feels like a mixed metaphor. And Jesus is usually a lot more organized than that. And again, believing this is inspired by God, I expect God is more organized than that, which makes me think I'm missing something. Mm -hmm. But I have something that seems very far-fetched, uh, but I just wonder about it because um, it says, for everyone shall be salted with fire. So really salted is the verb tense here in, in the fire. And I just wonder if yeah, it's that's the what I was just thinking. fire of the Holy Spirit um, and within like this group that maybe the salt has gone stale. They've lost their first love. And I just wonder if you know he's just saying you know the the holy spirit still is alive and well and and um maybe as they salt people with the fire of the spirit maybe as they you know fellowship together or whatever that um you could re to restore that saltiness you know um, i think that makes have sense salt within yourselves 
I think that makes sense. But in one sense, all you've done is move the awkward transition a little further. So in other words, what <laughs> I'm struggling with is how salt gets used one way and then another. You're now making salt consistent, but now fire is being used in two different ways, in one sentence to the next. Um, well, that is more consistent throughout scripture because fire is, is both positive and negative more than salt is, I think. But it's still a little hard. It still feels confusing, especially considering the fact that Jesus knows the disciples are having a hard enough time tracking as it is. So for him to be like, fire is punishment, fire is cleansing, right together is a really interesting choice. So here's what I do wonder as we're talking, and I think Yvette brings up a really good point that, that, that started this thinking for me. I think one of the things I'm wondering is if that's what we're missing. So what I was going to say earlier is I feel like culturally I'm missing something. And maybe what I'm missing is a very complex idea of the Holy Spirit that the, that the Jews would have had. That he can be both judging and, uh, what would be the other word here? Uh, inspi inspiring. I don't. I can't think of another word. Anointing. He can be both judging and anointing, um, and that. But it, it is a little weird to think of the Holy Spirit being the judging in hell. That feels contrary to the idea of God not being present. But but maybe it's not. Um, so maybe for them, the transition from the Holy Spirit or the fire of judgment to the fire of cleansing, maybe to them, that transition is a lot more seamless than it is to us. I could I could accept that. I could buy that. That seems to be true in other parts of scripture. As you say, Lorraine, that makes more sense to me than that salt is being used in two different ways intentionally. Maybe fire is being used in two different ways intentionally. And maybe he is making a transition, which is more comfortable and clear to them culturally than it is to us. I, I, I That is the, that's the... I think that's the answer at the moment that makes the most sense to me, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily right or wrong. You, you know what else? If you think about the beginning of this passage was about um, people leading the, the new believers astray. Yeah. And, and now he's saying here that you have to have salt among yourselves to, to keep the new, new believers on track. Yeah, and I think that's right. That flow I'm good with. It's just the 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 fire to fire to salt to salt. I think that's just where I struggle a little bit. You have one kind well, of fire, and then another kind of fire, and then a salt, and then another kind of salt. And maybe maybe they're all maybe there isn't a transition. Maybe there is, but I think what you said is right. And and Meredith said something similar earlier that the idea that one of the ways you know we have two options: we either lead people astray or we become salt. And in that way, we're, we're actually preserving life rather than destroying it. So I think mm -hmm. there is a flow there that makes sense. Yes, Meredith, what were you going to say? Oh, I mean, I don't know if this is even a thing or maybe I'm just thinking weirdly, but I mean, it doesn't say that it's salted with salt. And a lot of times if you, if you salt something or it says she salted the steak, that would be with salt. This says like salted with fire. So that also could just mean like a little bit, but then I know it's still awkward because it just goes on to salt. But I mean, wouldn't the verb salted, it could also just be like sprinkled. It could be, but it is specifically salted. Um, it, well, I mean, and then he's clearly using salt as a noun in the next sentence. So there is somewhere in here yeah. missing the clean transition i think you're right where we there's several different options for where exactly that transition has taken place but I, i'm not sure what it is I, guess. I like where you're all going because you're all acknowledging that this is probably not random 
that there probably is a flow and a transition. And I tend to think that's generally true. Um, and I think all these are really plausible answers. So Matthew 18 is the same passage. It doesn't have the salt part, but <laughs> but we'll read the uh, we'll read this again. And I don't I won't have as many comments. It's the same story. I think a lot of the same things apply. It says Matthew 18 seven through eleven says this: Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. So this is a broader sort of statement. Um, Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Uh, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, he goes back to the little ones, which leads credence to the idea that he might be using hands and feet and eyes as a as a metaphor for those people who cause people to stumble, right? Because that's what he said before this. And after this, he goes back to the little ones and he says this, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. Uh, yes, Meredith, I saw you raise your hand. Oh, sorry. I might just be whatever. Um, <laughs> so I was looking at the King James version. It's a little bit different. It says... Um, for everyone shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but the salt has lost his saltness. Wherewith will he season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So in that one, it like actually flows a lot better. It does. And that verse about everyone is sacrificed with salt is a much later edition. And we now know that. And okay. the reason I think it's there is because it didn't make sense to us without it. So in other words, okay. the later edition, because the scribe added it to try to explain the transition. But since it's not in the earlier editions, I don't actually know if it is what the transition was. Does that make sense? Yeah. So is this uh, in Matthew kind of where the idea of the guardian angel comes from? This is absolutely where the people who are firm believers in guardian angels drop from. Yep. Yep. This is the one. This is the verse. Um, there's one other, but this is this is the primary verse that people take to express guardian angel, belief in guardian angels to children. And it's not a bad, I mean, it says something. It is, a, you know, what, what does it mean? <laughs> That's actually more than angels. I sort of thought there was. Yeah, it's actually more than I kind of thought there was specifically about guardian angels. So yeah, yeah, no, it, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, I think the guardian angels in this verse are to, to um, keep us safe from uh, the wrong influences, rather than to keep us safe from an automobile accident. Maybe so, mm -hmm. maybe so. Um, yeah, maybe so. It just, it feels a little bit like a warning again, just that God has people specifically looking out for the little ones. So be careful what you do to them. Um, which is very guardian angelish one way or another, whether it's influences or, but, but you're right. It doesn't seem like Jesus is saying this guardian angel will keep you from stubbing your toe or, you know, even being eaten by a lion, you know, in the, in the, uh, gladiator. It's, it is something yeah, probably more important, but also less sort of obvious in some ways. Yeah, it does a good job of 
just emphasizing his like protection. Yeah, I think that is over the them. And also that this is a real thing and he has the power to do this. Um, some of your, so you guys notice that there is no verse 11 in, in uh, or I don't know if there is in the chronological Bible. Is it missing verse 11? It is. And there's a tag that says some manuscript here includes the word of, of Luke 19.10. Correct. So Luke 19.10 says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And some manuscripts have that verse here. Um, we're going to see that a number of times today, where we do have questions about manuscripts, and some occasionally things even get reordered. Um, but but reordered is not right. In this case, if this is here, it just is, remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke borrow from each other in some fashion. There's all sorts of debates and arguments about who was first and who borrows from who, or whether there was another source that they all borrow from. If you were with me when we did our intratestamental talk, I explained that my position, which is not necessarily the right one, but the one that makes the most sense to me, is that there doesn't need to be another source. There could be, doesn't violate scripture if there even is, but there doesn't need to be. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can easily explain why they have some things in common if they borrowed from each other. And I tend to be uh, what's called the Markan hypothesis, which is that Mark was first Matthew borrows from Mark, and then Luke borrows from Mark and Matthew. And that actually does explain all of the, the commonalities and differences that exist. It also makes sense because Mark is really short, and Matthew would have wanted to add to that. And then Luke is the most detailed, who drew from, we know, several different sources. Anyway, none of that matters that much. The point is just to say that would explain why here this verse about for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost would exist in Luke and exactly exist here in Matthew as well, is because Matthew may have lifted it completely from Luke. The fact that we don't, that that some, and I believe, does the note say some manuscripts or does it say later manuscripts? It just says some. Yes. So there's a little code in the way that editors do this. If it says some manuscripts include this, what it means is manuscripts of, as far as we know, equal veracity. So they don't know what to do. In other words, manuscripts from the same time period, the same ancient documents, some of them have this verse there, some of them do not. And that's why they have to make a editorial choice and then tell you at the bottom, we don't know. If it said later manuscripts include this, then that's their way of saying, we think it's not likely that it was in the original because it only shows up later. Um, none of that matters because this particular verse is not at odds with anything, and it does exist in Luke, regardless of whether it shows up here in Matthew. What is nice about this verse is that it does flow well, because what it, what it would be saying in this context is, don't lead anyone to stumble. God is aware of that. He's even got angels protecting people and looking out for them. And you know why that is? Because the whole purpose of Jesus being here is to save people. He's coming not only to to, 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 he's not coming to judge people. He's coming to seek them and save them. So while you're busy stumbling them, he's doing the opposite. He really wants to come get people and rescue them. And that flow is very nice. It's a nice sort of cap to the, to the warning. Then it's not just a warning. It's also an encouragement. It's a cap that not only the angels in heaven see the face of God, but Jesus himself is here specifically to rescue all of those who are willing to be vulnerable, who are willing to believe who are willing to trust, who are childlike in that respect, Jesus, I mean, he's here to rescue everyone, but he can't force his rescue upon those who refuse to submit. And so I think that 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 flow is nice, whether or not it's actually what Matthew wrote or not, we'll 
Mm, I would say never know, but that uh, two caveats to that. One is we might find an earlier manuscript which makes it clear someday, and in heaven we might know. But aside from that, we will never know if Matthew wrote it or not, but it's okay. Uh, it fits either way, and we know it's true either way. All right. And it does also make this kind of, like you said, an encouragement at the end of the warning, because it's also like even he's not here to oppose in opposition to you. He's here just for all of the lost. But if you are making people, if you are getting people lost, he's going to seek them out and he's going to know. That's right. That's really good. It also fits where we're about to go, by the way. It is a nice transition to Matthew uh, verse 12, uh, which is another reason that I actually suspect the verse, it makes sense if the verse was there. Uh, Matthew 18, 12 through 14 says this, what do you think? What do you think? Think about this, says Jesus. Where, where do you stand on this? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So there you go. That's the cap that fits the seek and save. It's that recognition that, you know, of those that aren't wandering, those that aren't wandering are safe. They're they're in the fold. They're okay. This passage does not say Jesus doesn't care about those that are in the fold. It just says that, you know, that like a shepherd, he knows he's got the 99 safe. He's going to go out and look for the other. He's not going to say 99 is good enough. I only lost one. He's going to say, well, the 99 are safe. I got to go get that one. And he's going to put his interest and his time and his energy into getting that one. And he's going to feel a certain sort of joy about bringing the one back to the other 99. So I think that that is an important message. Um, and it well, even, the flow of everything. Even the verse that he's happier about the one than the 99 is very much like in the parable of the prodigal son where he That's tells right. the son who stayed, I'm always happy to see you. We eat together all the time. So this party is a special event because of a status change. Yep. Yeah, this parable is very similar to the prodigal son parable, but much pared down, obviously. Yeah, really good. Good. Any I, other uh, uh, I have one. Um, yeah. And I know I, I shared a, this with a lot of you before. And it's kind of, I'm glad that we talked about the scripture tonight because it's encouraging me in that regard because it's helping me to remember my past. But uh, I, I felt that way about uh, how I was able to leave New Mexico because, and Meredith knows this, I kind of, I gave up myself during that time period, during the time period that I was being abused by my husband, I gave up on myself, but God didn't give up on me. And he sent you guys, he said, you, David and Meredith and, you know, the people that aren't here, Karen, both pastors at Anchor Point, there were people that were reaching out and encouraging me <laughs> that, and honestly, which Dave, you know this too, honestly, there are times during that time period that I didn't even want that encouragement and and none of y'all gave up on me. <laughs> and, and so, so since that point, this, this, uh, this passage of scripture has been very encouraging, inspiring to me because it, I, I can see how God reached out to me during that time period when I didn't have the, the, the strength or the wisdom or, uh, or the understanding of God's grace to help myself. No, that's really good. And, and, and it is, it's a, it's a fantastic encouragement. You know, there's the, the other 
uh, passage in one of the Gospels where Jesus tells not only this story, but other very connected stories, you know, about the lost coin and and a um, couple others. And, and all of them together really do produce this really strong understanding that you're, you know, our tendency to think is we're just one person, you know, what it, if, if God himself didn't repeatedly say so in scripture, the Christian position would be nothing but incredibly arrogant because the Christian position is that God cares individually about each of us and that he goes out of his way individually to be involved in our lives and to save us and to rescue us and to seek us and to find us. And that position to say that about the God of the universe, it's either extremely arrogant or it's very humble and it's an acceptance of the fact that God tells us that's who he is. And for God to repeatedly tell us that and Jesus to tell us that over and over and for us to really grasp that, it, I think it's it is amazing. It's humbling, it's encouraging, and it's really, it's, it's what ultimately we hang our hat on as Christians because it isn't about our being able to impress him. It isn't about our being able to, to climb that mountain and prove ourselves worthy of him. It, it is really down to the fact that for some reason, that is the glory of God, that he is a God who individually cares and invests in every single human life. And that's that's quite a statement. Yeah. Meredith. I was thinking too, because I was kind of trying to see how like in context how the like the flow keeps going and um it actually really does like with him like with the humility of you know like god being in charge and his way being the right way you know like with the the transfiguration and other things he's like get behind me satan you know we're going this way and stuff like that and just as driving home more the fact that he is the author and the perfecter of like everything yeah that's really good meredith and the flow does continue i think another way the flow continues is that he is still saying you know that the prodigal son and this story about the sheep they both have a, a dual message and the first message is to those who are humble and vulnerable and the second message is to those who are proud and think they're part of the 99 already that he's saying to them don't think that God won't be going off after these other people. You dismiss these yeah. other people as less important. Prodigal son, as Lorian pointed out, has that older brother in there as a lesson for the Pharisees. The older brother isn't unloved. The older brother is not dismissed, but the older brother dismisses the younger. And God's message to him is that's a, that's wrong. That's mistaken. You shouldn't do that. And so to yeah. the Pharisees- well, Even kind of the disciples- because they yeah. were kind of acting like that. Absolutely. To, to all those who see themselves now as a little bit more powerful, with a little bit more authority, a little bit more deserving of Jesus' attention, he's basically, this is a little bit of a caution to them. You know, be careful about how you think about that. So I think that, that flow is there. Um, or even the one, I don't remember if we've read this one yet. I don't think we have, but where uh, all the workers start at a different time, but are paid the same because that's yeah. what they agreed to. And it's basically that message of when it comes to worry about yourself, worry about other people and how you can take care of them and, you know, not cause them to stumble. But as far as who gets, gets what and who's judged how, worry about yourself. That's good. Yeah, you're right. That's one of my favorite parables. It's a little quirky, but I really like it. But you're right. We haven't gotten there yet. So we'll, we'll, we'll come to that later. It's a very great Hebrews in Hebrews. They... It's a really gracious parable that doesn't look gracious at first, but is actually very gracious. And that's, I love it, but we'll get there later. Um, okay. I like it because, 
Um, because it feels like more applicable. Like I feel like I can relate more. Like I could be like, oh, I could see how I could be kind of like that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so the flow does continue, but he he does make a turn here, and he's gonna make. He's been talking about authority. He's been talking about power and glory. He's gonna talk about authority now a little bit, and he's gonna talk about how his he's. So if here's the way this might fit the flow, not that it has to, it is okay for Jesus to change subjects sometimes. I really don't have a problem with that. But but here's the way it does kind of fit the flow too. He's been telling the apostles, again, be careful about how much authority you, you sort of grab for yourself, because as he talked about, if you use that authority poorly for other people, you're working at odds with God. And be, so be careful about that. Be humble, be submissive, be childlike, be trusting, be dependent, that any authority you have has to fit in this context of dependent before God. And now he's going to talk, therefore, about what authority they do have. And he's going to talk about communal authority. And so he begins to talk about the church, which is one of the few places he talks about the church, because the church isn't a thing yet. The gathering has only begun. You could call the apostles sort of the beginning of it. But again, prior to the Holy Spirit, coming to everyone, which it even mentions at some point in here, uh, or that might be in John, but we'll get there. Prior to, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the, the official ecclesia isn't, isn't happening, but Jesus mentions them a few times, and this is one of those. So here we go. This is what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. So here's the thing. Everyone will stumble, he says, right? Things will cause people to stumble, but woe to the one who makes it. Don't be the guy that makes people stumble, but people are going to stumble. So now he says, well, what do we do if they do stumble? If our authority is not to make them stumble, what do we do when they do? And he says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that is a quote from Leviticus, from the law. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So this is an interesting passage. I think the thing to, to notice off the top is it, it's, it's as gentle as it can be. And the bar only moves to slightly less gentle and more public if it has to. And the goal of this passage, and this is made clear a little bit later, I think even in one of the other gospels, yes, not so much here, but in one of the others, the goal of this is not judgment. The goal is restoration. The goal is to bring that brother or sister out of their sin, to help seek and save, to lead them out of the stumbling. And you do it as gently as possible. It's not to embarrass them. You're not trying to make them feel bad. You're just trying to rescue them. And that's how it starts. If your brother or sister sins and you see it, go let them know and win them over. Just you, just the two of you. And if that happens, there's no reason to ever bring anybody else into it perfect sense. Um, if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along. Now, this is, I think, really important and easy to abuse. <laughs> Here's Listen to what he says. He says, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This quote from Leviticus, it's clear that what Jesus has in mind here is not recruiting two people to agree with your side of the story, who you then take to the other person, and the three of you say, see, we all agree. The point of this is find two other people who know, who saw, who witnessed. Now, maybe they witnessed the exact sin, or maybe they've witnessed the same sin on other occasions. I think either of those could be possible. But you're supposed to take actual witnesses with you. People who say, yes, I personally have seen this. I have literally seen this abused in such ways where it's, hey, I went to these people, I said, this guy did this, I need you to come with me and convince him he did this. That is not what this passage says. So here's what's interesting. 
What if you can't find two or three witnesses? Then you're done. I actually literally think at this point, if you can't win them over individually, if they refuse to accept that what you're saying is true and, and you are sure it's true, but you can't win them over personally, there's no further to go here. Because if there are no other witnesses, the whole point of the Leviticus passage of having two or three witnesses to any broken law, the point of that is to prevent it from becoming a he said, she said point. The point of it is to prevent it from you from making a mistake where you're sure something happened and they're sure something didn't, and you just kind of railroad them. So if you can't find two or three witnesses, then you say, I guess it's not that prevalent, even if it did happen before. The truth is, if this person is sinning and sinning regularly, there will be other witnesses. <laughs> if this person sinned once, then we all like to have a little grace for the moment that we sinned once <laughs> and, and have moved on. And I think that's part of the point. If there aren't two or three others, you don't create them. You don't make them. You just, you're done. That's the process. But if there were two or three others and you go to them and they still don't listen, if they refuse to listen, he says, tell it to the church. Now, this is really interesting, and something has occurred to me over the years, and let me let me just very, very briefly give you a background, because again, so you know my bias is I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, so you can agree or disagree or, or say this is Dave's bias, he's wrong. Over the years, I've become much, much less likely to gatekeep and more convinced that my job as a pastor is not to find out where people are being wrong and don't fit in our church and kick them out that more and more of my job is to is to invite people into the kingdom and let the holy spirit sort a lot of things out the the whole the whole wheat or or tares or wheat thing where i can't tell the difference and i let jesus sort it out at the end rather than me i tend to lean more and more that way but there is this question like here in matthew of well it does say that if they refuse to listen to the church treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector which seems to indicate, this is Jesus saying it. So by the way, first of all, I don't think it means to treat them unloving because he treated pagans and tax collectors with a lot of love. <laughs> but I think it does mean don't consider them part of the community. Okay, so there's a little kind of a gatekeeping thing there. But here's what I've realized recently. The way that evangelicalism has recently exercised what we call church discipline, which is pulled from a couple of passages in, in Paul's writings and this one here. And we'll talk about Paul's writings later, but just to deal with this one here. The way that evangelicalism has often applied this is to assume that when he says, take it to the church, what he means is take it to the elders who represent the church. And so that's typically what we do. We go to someone, we say, you're, you've sinned against, and usually, let's be honest, it's usually you've sinned against me, because um, that's usually when we notice sin. So you've sinned against me, and they don't listen to you, and then you take a couple of witnesses, and let's assume you're doing it right, so you find witnesses who actually saw the person sin against you, so you take them to him, and he still won't listen, and then you go to the elders, is the way we've often read it. You take it to the elders, and the elders decide, yeah, he's wrong, he's right, we're going to put him out. Even if the elders go through the process of bringing it to the whole community, it's never brought to the community as a decision. It's brought to the community as an instruction. And, and I have witnessed this and been part of it a couple of times in my own pastor experience. That you bring it to the community and you say, here's what's happened. He's not listening. He's being stubborn. So we're letting you all the church know that we need to treat him like a pagan and a tax collector. He's no longer part of our community. But I, that isn't what this passage says. It says, bring it to the church. 
And I will say, I don't know what that means. I don't know how you bring something like this to the community and have the community make an instruction or have the community talk to the person. I don't know what that looks like. But the fact that I don't know what that looks like makes me think we just haven't explored that and tried to understand it because we jumped immediately to the idea that the elders or pastors of a church are the sole representatives of a church. But there is nothing in this passage that indicates that kind of authority for a pastor. It only indicates that kind of authority for the community. So all that is to say, I don't know exactly what we're supposed to do. <laughs> but I think it's a good, I think it's personally healthy to start there and say there is, that if we were living more communally like the churches God was calling us to, maybe it wouldn't be so weird that, that these things could be brought to the community and the community could somehow lovingly restore that person. And I think the success rate of that would be better than the church discipline cases that I've personally been involved in. As I look back on my church discipline life, I've done it three times, and each of them were fairly extreme. I don't feel like we were really casual about it. But of two of those, I now think we're a mistake. Two of those, I now think, yeah, the person was wrong. But there was there was an avenue open to them that that didn't involve simply sort of shunning them. And even the shunning and the putting them out of a community, the way we think of that as treating them like a pagan or a tax collector, I'm not convinced we've got that right. Because again, Jesus' approach to pagans and tax collectors was actually really inclusive and loving. So I, again, can someone be loved and still be outside of a community? I think they can be. Typically, when the evangelicals put someone out of a community, they 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 actually remove love from them. And I that doesn't feel right either. So a lot of that, I know there's a lot there that is maybe not here, but this is just something that my mind has been wrestling with for a, a, about a decade now, as I'm trying to understand what gatekeeping position do we have as a church and how do we back away from the excesses of that? Because in general, I see Jesus being very inclusive and a lot less gatekeeping than we've been. Um, and um, I think I see that even with his apostles. So that's my thoughts. And Sue raised her hand. So go for it. What was the church at the time that Jesus was talking? There wasn't any church then. Right. So, so this is interesting because his whole point he's about to get into is your community now has authority. And, and it's going to have authority. And one of the ways it's going to have authority is in the ability to say, hey, you should turn back from sin and we're going to restore you from that. You have authority to restore people from sin or if they refuse to be restored to, again, in one way or another, whatever the point is, to not see them as, as part of the community. Lorian also raised her hand digitally. Meredith had her hand up first, so I'll go after Meredith. Uh, Meredith and then Lorian. Well, it kind of seems somewhat to flow from earlier when he was like kind of talking about like not following certain people and you will also like kind of go that from like the passage in Isaiah and that will be kind of like where you will go to. So I was just wondering if it's like more of a like very like serious thing, like they're actually like leading people astray or causing division or something like that, which would flow like really well from what we've been reading. Yeah, that's a good catch. And that also fits really well with the way Paul writes. When Paul writes about it, he's almost always talking about if there's somebody who's actually harming unity, then you have authority to put them out. And that, yeah. may, that so that fits the flow of what you're saying, that maybe the sin isn't just sort of 
you were angry with me or, you know, because Paul talks about bearing with people, right? Or even more a sin that is just, you know, whatever, uh, homosexuality or even, even sexual promiscuity. Again, when we get to Paul, he brings that up in one context, but I think more his point is, is their behavior and their their interpretation of their own behavior, is it damaging the community? And if that's true, if what you're saying is true, that the flow here is that he's talking about people who are bad mentors, people that we should cut off, right? Is this a continuation of cutting off the hand and the foot by cutting off people from the community who are hurting the community? That's interesting. That actually does fit the flow and make a little more sense. Again, I'm still not sure how you bring it to the church. Um, if not, yeah, no, yeah, with but, all that, I and, I, and I think it has been taken um, incorrectly at times, but no, but I think, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think your point is strong, Lorian. Yeah, I was, uh, two things. One, I was gonna ask if, in the context, it made sense that really he was looking at those sins that were hurting the vulnerable or hurting other people in the community and approaching those at this level because it does fit in the flow. Um, and then also, I think you're right that the way that the American evangelical church traditionally handles this, where it starts, where it all comes from the pastor ends up creating a lot of shame, which is not really ever a path to restoration. It's not a good motivator. And it's not the way that Jesus works in any interaction. So it does feel like if that's where you end up, there's something missing. If, when you look at everything else that Jesus says and does and Paul and John, there's just not this sort of shame-based um, excommunication. So. Yeah. And, and so often, I, and again, this is just, even if, even if the, the method we're using is correct, and it does come down to sort of has to go through the elders, that the difficulty historically that we've seen is that typically it's just been used to, to increase conformity to a particular tradition and not really to increase devotion to Christ. And so there's, there's something intrinsically wrong if that's what we're doing. Yeah, well, and also with this, I mean, the person is like, yeah, I mean, first it's just like one person and then it's, you know, like a couple more. And so, I mean, in some ways, it kind of almost seems like a Christian judicial system or something, you know? That Clearly, there is. Yeah, even the fact that he quotes Leviticus, I think, indicates that Jesus is saying, look, when you were the Israelite nation, God gave you some, I gave you some laws and some, some judicial ways to function as a nation. You're no longer a nation. Now you're going to be a kingdom of God. You're going to be something else. And as that something else, that ecclesia, that gathering of people that assembling together as you as you are that assembling together here's some new rules they are still drawn from the principles of the old rules like two witnesses um, and they're still about restoration you can even argue the leviticus laws were more about restoration than punishment um but but i think you're right i think it is a little bit of a what's the sort of judicial system within the church how does this work but what's fascinating is in leviticus it's very clear about judges and individual leaders and here, again, Jesus speaks of it very communally, right? The only individuals in this passage are the first one who comes to the other individual. When it goes beyond the three that come to the one, it, he suddenly, it becomes communal. He doesn't go to an individual. He doesn't mention the leaders. He doesn't mention the apostles. He doesn't mention elders or pastors, which, by the way, he doesn't talk about at all. I'm not saying they shouldn't exist. I, I, I think that Paul makes some really clear 
it's just kind of Paul's job to talk about the administration of the church. But it is interesting that Jesus never talks about how this community will be led. He just talks about it as being very communal and, and functioning as a gathering, as an assembly. Even the word church here is just, it is literally assembling, the assembling. Um, so all of that is uh, fascinating to me. And and I, I, I yeah. guess- Well, it's gentler than something, like if you're suing some, someone in like the regular worldly oh, judicial sure. system. For sure. And Jesus and Paul both say, if you can avoid the judicial world system, um, that, that's better. <laughs> yeah. And that part of that has to do with their time, but I think that's true today too. There's a certain arbitrariness, certain difficulty to a large uh, judicial system that you're always going to run into. Um, and and so I just want to just think, I don't want to leave any weird taste in anybody's mouth. Just let me be clear. I'm wrestling with what I think are two important points. I think there is a place for church discipline. And I, and I do actually think it's particularly when the community is being harmed. And I think there has to be some sort of way to deal with that. So I'm not opposed to that at all. But I do think we, that my experience is we've done it wrong. <laughs> and that <laughs> revisiting the passages that we took to tell us how to do it. And I'm wondering if we haven't actually not followed those very well. Um, so that's where I'm at. That's something I'm wrestling with, not something I have certainty about. Lorraine, did you finish what you were saying or not? I wasn't sure. I think I did. I think I just, I think it does, if it only comes from the top down, it definitely creates avenues for the kind of abuse he's speaking out <laughs> against in earlier passages. So it is kind of funny that in this context, that can be, this piece can be pulled out of context and wielded in the way that Jesus was so strongly warning against earlier. So even if there is something, some sort of top-down authority, you have to keep it in the context of how seriously leaders how much responsibility they have, not just authority. That's good. Yeah, that's that's a good point. You might be contrasting against the Pharisees too. Say that again one yeah. more time. Contrasting the against the Pharisees. For sure. For sure. So judgmental versus a loving approach. Yes. And that's part of the thing. And we're, we're not going to have time tonight. But as we move forward, he starts talking a lot all of a sudden about ju right judgments and wrong judgments. And in fact, we, we get to that story about the, the adulterous woman that's very famous, mm -hmm. which, which now some people question whether it's even in scripture. We'll talk about that next week. I think it is. Um, but um, but um, it is interesting that he moves into that and he starts encouraging a lot less judgment, not a lot more judgment. And again, I'm not opposed to, to discernment and certain kinds of, we have to make judgments. I'm not in that camp where you can't make judgments, but there is a certain kind of judgment that Jesus begins to very much push back against. Um, and, um, and it's interesting that it's in this context. Yeah, I think that's really right. And it is interesting that if you read this passage in Matthew and end up acting in the ways the Pharisees did, if you end up becoming the same kind of gatekeepers that the Pharisees clearly are being that Jesus doesn't like, then clearly we've missed something, right? And I do think that the, and I, I can only speak from my experience, my experience with church discipline is that it looked a lot more like pharisaical gatekeeping than not. And so it does seem like this passage has to somehow be something else. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think we can ignore it, but it has to be very different. As you say, it has to be in contrast to the way the Pharisees gatekeeped, which was to keep almost everybody out, frankly, except the most pure. It has to be different than that. If it's not, 
then Jesus makes no sense and we are, or we've missed the entire point. So um, yeah, I had a lot more prepared, which is always nice because it means that we, I have, I don't have to do as much next couple of weeks. Um, we were getting into John. John suddenly picks up a lot. Of, I mean, again, we haven't seen a lot of John. We're going to get to John here in a little bit, but we'll just, we'll just stop here because it is after 830. Um, Matthew has a little bit more about church authority. He's going to talk about and then we'll start getting into John, who has some very strong things to say about Jesus' authority and Pharisaical authority and church authority. Um, and I think there is a flow there. So it'll fit even coming off of Matthew. But I did not. In so the passages I didn't even include on the slide took most of the time today. So um, uh, good job, Lorian, for reminding me that I left them out. Anybody have any last thoughts, questions, concerns, encouragements? Uh, any, any last thoughts before we wrap up for the evening? Well, thanks for doing this. This is really good. Like again, and it like makes a lot more sense than before and just like the whole context thing and seeing like kind of the purpose with it and like putting it all like together and not just, cause even just that, that whole about, you know, if your hand causes you to sin or whatever thing, you know, and just these little snippets, it just, yeah it's not like that it's yeah there's yeah. purpose there's yeah i think the fact that there's clear hyperbole and that jesus uses an object lesson next to him is a good reminder that we need to treat jesus sermons as both sacred and inspired different than anything else but also a lot like every other public speaker that he's going to use the same kinds of mechanisms and language and approaches that we all do and why because that's how we understand things <laughs> you know yeah in some sort of sacred language none of us understood but what would be the point so i i just think it's important you know in a moment like that to go okay if my you know if, if a pastor spoke like this and we knew what we know about jesus well, you know, where would we be? What would it mean? And we know a lot about Jesus at this point, having walked through the Gospels this far, that it really helps us to kind of put things together and say, does he really want me to cut my hand off? Clearly not. I would never assume my pastor meant he wanted me to cut my hand off if he said something like this. Um, if I did, I should get in a different church, just for the record, because that would be... Um, and he, yeah, uh... no, I, I, no, I think that's good. And that's right. Yeah, because I think sometimes, well, I know I have just been kind of like, sacred and inspired doesn't mean like not real and like relevant i mean jesus wants us to know him it it, it, it better be relevant or it's not very inspired <laughs> <laughs> true Anybody else? any other questions or, or uh encouragements are always good thank you meredith i appreciate that but any questions or concerns or encouragements? anything else so yeah just real quick on the um like church discipline thing just to like, I mean, I guess I'm seeing a third level kind of in, the, in between of where you treat them like an unbeliever, but you don't value their opinion like you would a believer. But, you, I mean, we don't look at the people in our church, and I don't know of any church to say, you don't believe exactly what we believe, so go away. They, they, they say, you don't believe exactly what we believe, so believe what we believe, at least. I think that's so, I mean, I guess I see it. No, I think that's really good, Jeff. And I do think that's part of the issue. I do think that, that we have taken... It's treat them as pagan. And, and again, it depends on how much harm they're coming in the community, what it means. But but again, I look at our church right now, and we have all sorts of beliefs and what I would call wrong beliefs in our community. But isn't that true of every community? And and we have, but we have atheists and we have we have all sorts of people in our community that we still welcome into our community. But I wouldn't put an atheist in leadership. I wouldn't encourage people to have an atheist mentor their spiritual lives. 
And I think that goes back to what we were saying, that maybe this is about those people who are leading you astray. And Jesus is like, look, if they aren't, if they aren't teachable, if they aren't coachable, if they aren't open to correction, then don't treat them like they have authority in your life. And maybe that's what it means to treat them like pagans and tax collectors. You wouldn't let a tax collector tell you how to live your Christian life or, or a pagan how to live your Christian life. So don't, so don't let these guys do that just because they happen to be in the community. It, it might have more to do with that. I, I'm still wrestling with the, all the influence of that, but I think you're right. I don't think it means necessarily that you cease to love. Well, it doesn't mean you cease to love them. I know that. But but even how much tough love does it mean? How much does it mean shunning them? I'm not sure. Jesus didn't shun pagans and tax collectors, so I'm not sure if that's what it means. But if they are harming the community, there's certainly a disfellowship that might be appropriate. I, there's a lot. There's a lot. I don't want to get too far afield. Yes, Meredith. Like, I get the pagans thing. I don't get the tax collector thing. Why do you think he specifically said tax collectors? I don't oh, get that because, as much. Because to them, tax collectors are worse than pagans, remember? Yeah, but do you if, just if, think it would be how they would see them? 100%. Yeah, he would say, how do you treat a tax collector? Not, not. I don't think, again, meaning to hate them, but do you do you look to them for authority you know matthew what this is matthew well and i guess too you feel like they're like a traitor so if like someone in the community is like really harming it and they yeah are not willing to repent then yeah by the way matthew is the one recording this and he is the tax collector so it's interesting that he makes a point of including this particular statement from jesus yeah (laughs) so yeah i think you're right i think it's just to, to, it's just, it would be like, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of what would be, some, you know, it's just a way I think of saying to them. Don't follow Benedict Arnold. Don't follow Benedict Arnold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Well, uh, and I know uh, we've, uh, you and I, Dave, uh, uh, whether it be in a Tuesday night group or uh, other venues have, uh, I need to put into uh, my ex-husband's opinion on things. And this is a good reminder too, where, uh, where, the, where I'm once again reminded that God's boundaries is that I'm still supposed to, you know, uh, wish him well and uh, have, you know, Christian compassion on him, but I don't necessarily have to, you know, get, overly stressed out every time he's upset about something (laughs) it is interesting also and not irrelevant that we are about two paragraphs away from peter saying to jesus how often should i forgive someone so that also seems relevant to this conversation doesn't it yeah but peter's like well if we're allowed to treat tax collectors you know how often do i forgive someone if they keep saying they come back you know if they keep act you know how often do i do that and of course jesus answer is forever forever plus forever. Um, let me actually, I wasn't going to, but let me just read. I won't, I, I think they're be clear in this context, but I'll just read. There's just a couple of verses. They come so well off of this idea of church authority. I just want to read them really quick. So he's just said, your church has authority to, to restore people, or if they don't restore, to discipline them, whatever that means. And then he says this, 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I think he's just, again, he's making this point that as you receive people into the kingdom of God, they are actually received into the kingdom of God. And, and I don't want to emphasize so much that that means they can then choose willy-nilly to put people out of the kingdom of God. I think he's just saying, you are, the church will be the representative of God's kingdom on earth that for now. And, and so that even when you welcome someone in, that's an authority you're giving. That's an authority you have. That's a big authority. Then he goes on and says this, again, I truly tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And I want to stress, I don't think this is about prayer. I think it's about church authority again. He's saying, what makes a gathering? Two or three of you. That's it. So, I, I mean, maybe this is hyperbole. It, it's a little hard to figure out how a church of three would function, but I suppose it could. So maybe it's a little hyperbole, but I think the point is still valid. As you gather together as a community in your gathering, you have authority. And the size of your, of your gathering doesn't negate that authority. That doesn't determine how much authority you have. Your authority is in that you're gathering in my name. That's it. You gather in my name, you have the authority of the church. I think that's a really sort of special comment um, about church authority. Again, we'll get into more of that uh, next week, but I did want to, I think those come off of the church discipline discussion. I think they're part of the flow about church authority. Yes, Meredith. Well, and when you have like two or three, then you have the two or three witnesses that we've been talking about. True. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have at least two or three, then you won't just have two guys arguing with each other about who sinned against two. So there you go. Well, I just think it was like the authority thing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. No, that's good. Even that idea, right? That we're two or two or three witnesses kind of confirm truth. And so having yeah. to. Yeah. We're, we're God's witnesses, you know, as the that's church. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Okay. We really do need to wrap up. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.